As a kid, I loved to play sports. I uh, played pretty much everything. I played uh, several seasons of Little League Baseball. I uh, played hours and hours of flag football, and uh, we had a basketball court behind our house, and so I certainly played uh, many, many, uh, well into many evenings, many games of basketball. But the, the sport that I loved was soccer. Now, there's a reason for that, and it's because that was pretty much the only thing I was good at. I was not coordinated enough to play baseball or basketball. I was too skinny and too slow to play football. But for some reason or another, all of those things worked out when it came to soccer. And so I played a lot of soccer growing up. I played well into junior high. Uh, but then I had a growth spurt, became a teenager, got lazy, and stopped playing. Went off to Northland. And when I arrived there, found out that that school was in the midst of what was, I think, a, a seven-year run of national championships in soccer for their division. In fact, the, while I was there, Northland achieved its biggest victory in school history, actually defeating an NCAA team in soccer. Well, one year I was at Northland, they decided that uh, since it was such a popular sport on campus, that they would have an indoor soccer league. And I thought to myself, well, I used to be pretty good, so I signed up. And about two games into it, I was thoroughly and completely embarrassed. I was playing alongside people who had grown up in South America, who had grown up in Africa and in Europe, where soccer was the sport to play. There was none of this play six or seven different things growing up. All you did was play soccer. And I felt like an idiot. And I felt, I had a picture in my mind when I signed up. Oh, I used to be so good. In fact, I was good enough one year to win an MVP. But after two games, I realized I was not so much a big deal anymore. Throughout the book of Job, Job has been making the argument that if he was simply given the chance, he could take care of his problem. He numbers of times says, if I could just sit across the table from God, I would be able to show him, prove to him that none of this should have ever happened. Job has declared a number of times that he, if, was, if he was just given the ability and the chance, he could take care of his problems. As we talked about last week, when we suffer difficulty, when we face something that is hard, often our minds get very scrambled. And we saw last week that one of the first things that God does for Job is to go through a series of questions to try and draw him back to right thinking. He tries to get Job to understand that it was God's wisdom that he needed in his life. And that's where we opened Job declaring, I'm just going to put my hand over my mouth. Clearly, I have something I need to learn. This second speech of God to Job is essentially to let Job know that he's not the big shot he thinks he is. Since the beginning of Elihu's speeches, two themes have continued to come up, God's wisdom and God's power. And last week we saw the correction of Job as God explained the need for his wisdom. But here the correction is all about God's power. The idea is not just that we are not as powerful of God, 
as, as God. It, it is that in comparison with him, we are extraordinarily weak in every conceivable way. And this is a big lesson in scripture, one that we will find in nearly every book of the Bible, a, a, a reaffirmation that God is big and we are what? Small. That God is great and we are not. That God is strong and we are weak. This is a significant lesson, and here God is going to lay this out for Job in a very unique way. Let me give you three points this morning. Number one, we are only human. We are only human. This is verses three to verse verse three to verse fourteen. And again, opens with the statement that Job makes his action or his statement of submission. I'm going to cover my mouth. Clearly, uh, I am in deep water here. Job is responding to God's challenge. Could you manage the world? And and Job is responding. Of course, I could not manage the world, especially a world I barely understand. Now God's going to take Job beyond the lessons of nature and he's going to take Job to more difficult problems. The first of which here in these first few verses is going to be the problem of injustice. To understand perhaps how, what God is trying to ask Job or what Job, uh, God's doing with Job, let's just think a moment uh, of the kind of injustices we know of exist in this world. Certainly we know about con men who come along and they uh, deceive elderly folks out of a lifetime of savings. We see on the news dictators who use international aid to get fat while their people starve. Here in Nebraska, because of the I-80 expressway, even the sex slave trade has become a problem. We know of child factory workers that are making shirts that are sold for $80 while they make maybe 35 cents a day. We hear stories of crooked police officers and abusive parents and people who are persecuted because of their faith. These are real injustices in the world. And I'm sure we could come up with many more, but let's just consider a moment the ones that I've, I've mentioned here. We could spend a lifetime trying to get justice for those wrongs. We could perhaps begin a boycott against clothes that use child slave labor. We could uh, avoid going to big cities so that we don't find ourselves interacting with the sex slave trade. Some of our young people could grow up and become lawyers and they could prosecute con men and crooked cops. And we could join the army or the marines and we can go and topple dictators. But we would never have the ability to fight at all. And we would try so hard to do it outside of God's wisdom that we will make the situation worse. The key verse here is in verse 9. And God's question of Job, do you have an arm and do you have the voice? Do you have the strength necessary, Job, to restrain injustice Job, can you bend sin in such a way that even though someone meant it for evil, make good come about? Job, do you have an arm that reaches all the way from Nebraska to the center of Africa? I'm reading that into the text. Does Job have a voice that thunders, that can stop people in their tracks? 
Job had the kind of voice that would call the most or cause the most hardened criminal to to tremble? Does Job have the kind of voice you ever yelled at your dog to start barking in the middle of the night? Does it ever work? God's saying to Job, do you have the kind of voice that can stop the wild dogs from barking? And then in verses 11 through 14, God kind of mocks Job because he knows the answer. He says, he he offers to Job, here, have my throne, here, have my robes, here, have my glory. Here, go ahead, give it a try. Do you have a voice that if you yelled loud enough could stop the mad and lusting kings of this world? They don't listen, do they? He says to Job, if if you really could reign in evil, if you really could get justice, I will admit that you're as mighty as I am. Now we have to be careful here. God is not making the argument that running the world is difficult. He's not trying to say to Job, look, this job is really hard. You think you could do it? That's not at all the argument that God is making with Job. The argument that God is making with Job, the confrontation he's having with Job, is to confront Job over thinking he was something more than human. Think about how we do this in our life. When we're young. When we're young, we don't think about dying, do we? It never even crosses our minds. And so there's no limit to what we can do. We're full of strength, full of energy. So we try and do it all. We think we can do it all. And in doing so, we sin. Because we try to be like God, who is the only one without limits. Think about how we do this as we get older. Now we come to the peak of our abilities. Our our bodies are at a peak point. Our minds are at a peak point. And we think to ourselves, you know what? Now I can fix, and now I can control, and now I can overcome all these things that I'm going to face. And we think we can get everything around us to function the way we want it to function. And we sin, trying to be like God. Because only God has the power to fix and control everything. And then we get older. And we begin to grow weak. The energy is not there. But at least we have wisdom and experience. We start thinking that people should defer to our wisdom when it comes to marriage, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to the issues of life. And we sin, thinking we are God. Because only God knows everything. Only God's wisdom is sufficient. As Christians, we are called to put away trying to be God. And glory in what it means to be human. There is immense liberation in understanding who we are. God is great. God is strong. And we don't glorify God by trying to be him. We're actually called to a different greatness, as the Bible explains to us, a greatness that does not require being strong or wise or energetic. It's a greatness found in following the footsteps of Jesus that is primarily described as being a servant. We are only human. Number two, only God can save. Only God can save. From verse 15 all the way through chapter 40, or verse 15 of chapter 40, all the way through chapter 41, we have two creatures we're introduced to. 
Now, there's a great deal of debate what these creatures are. They have a lot of uh, describers about them that do sound like dinosaurs. The, the word behemoth in this text, uh, if you want to just get a straightforward, literal rendering of the word, it means mega cow. A large uh, herbivore. The descriptions that follow it do sound a lot like a brontosaurus uh, or a, a, a dinosaur of the same type. But there are also descriptions there of behemoth that don't match those ideas. Same goes for Leviathan, who we're introduced to in chapter 41. This also sounds a great deal like a dinosaur of the sea. But again, attributes that don't make sense. We understand that Job is written in poetic form. So here's, let me help you understand. Okay, first of all, it's clear from the text that these creatures are some form of an animal that Job has encountered. Uh, they're likely, the, the language is probably meant to be kind of a souped-up version. For example, Leviathan uh, has all the characteristics in, in the language of, a, of an alligator. But he has more than that. Alligators, when they slink into the river, don't cause great mighty waves, which is how the text describes this animal. So what we're talking about are animals Job was probably familiar with, but the descriptions of them are intentionally souped up. Secondly, the text is very clear about the fact that these are animals that only God can kill or tame. Meaning that men don't have any ability to, to do either of those things when it comes to these animals. And then number three, because it's poetic language, we understand and it's clear that these animals are meant to be figures of something else. Now the behemoth, his primary description is based upon his appetite. He is primarily described by what he eats. So he starts in the text by telling us he eats grass like the ox. Then it tells us that the mountains are constantly providing food for the behemoth. The idea there would be is the animals of the mountain are providing food for the behemoth as if they were in subjugation to him. Like he's the king, they're the other's kingdoms, and they're bringing him food. That's what the language is picturing there. And then lastly, we're told that he could walk into the river and take great mouthfuls of the river and never drowned. The idea is these pictures together create this idea of an animal that is never satisfied. And the fear that we're supposed to have of the behemoth is that he's too big, he's too strong to be stopped. And because he can't be stopped, someday he's going to eat everything and everybody. Then we get to the Leviathan. We actually have a whole chapter, pretty much, of a description of, of Leviathan. And the primary describer here is how dangerous he is. Described as one with razor-sharp teeth, scales thicker than any armor, and a nostril that has both fire and smoke coming out of it. We have record here, as God says, look, many men have tried to kill him and have failed. No weapon has been able to hurt him. He's described as one who bends iron like we would bend straw. The idea there, as I mentioned, is that when he goes into the water, great waves are produced. The, the, the whole of the, uh, of the oceans kind of recede away from him. He's so large. The fear, the thing that we're supposed to be afraid of here, is that we would ever encounter this animal. The dragon, this serpent... The fear here is that you would ever see him or that he would ever see you. 
Now, if we take the describers of the behemoth and we take the describers of Leviathan, it becomes clear over the course of Scripture what these two animals are meaning to represent. Behemoth is described in much of the same terms as death itself. Behemoth, walking the earth, eating, consuming the grass as the Psalms describes the lives of all men. Death is always taking a life. Not a second goes by on this earth that death is not pulling up the weed that is human life. He consumes and consumes and consumes and consumes and is never satisfied. Leviathan, again, as you go over scripture, the descriptions used for Leviathan is clearly he is there to represent evil itself. Perhaps even Satan himself. Both evil and Satan are described over the course of scripture as great dragons wandering the earth looking to see what they could destroy or what they could devour. And that's the way Satan's described at the beginning of this book. Now, I've mentioned this many times from the pulpit, that the Bible is very clear that we as human beings were never meant to die. It was the sin of Adam that unleashed death upon the human race. And death very much has since then been a mega cow with an appetite never fulfilled. Even when men and women were living long, extraordinarily, extraordinary lives in Genesis 5, the point of Genesis 5 is that they what? They still died. They might have lived 700 and some odd years. They might have lived 900 and some odd years. But the point of Genesis 5 is that they still died. The beast, the great beast that is death, has roamed the earth with a powerful stomach and strength of bronze and iron. But the text says something very specific. God can defeat behemoth. God can come to it with a sword and plunge it deep into the belly of the beast. And at the resurrection of Jesus Christ, God dealt death a mortal blow. And there is a day, according to Revelation, when death itself will be thrown into the lake of fire. And the resurrection of Jesus, we're told, is the first of the promise that while death may come for us, we will not be swallowed. We, too, will be resurrected. Then we come to Leviathan, evil, and Satan himself were described as God being able to pull him away by his nostrils with fish hooks in his nostrils. Anybody ever got a fish hook in their face? The idea is that God has the ability to take Leviathan and pull him away using fish hooks. You ever gone to somebody's house and been surrounded by dogs? Like pulled up in your car, open the dog, and you just hear the barking, and all of a sudden you're just surrounded. Maybe they're happy dogs, nice dogs. Maybe they're not mean dogs, but you're just surrounded by dogs. And maybe there's a point where you kind of hope, if they're, especially if they're growling at you, that the owner will come along at some point and call them off. See, Job has feared that his suffering was unrestrained, that the attacks would just keep coming. It would go on forever and ever and ever. Now, we know that Job doesn't know why he's suffering. We do as the reader. We know why Job is suffering. We know that Job is suffering because God counted him as somebody who could suffer and still love God. But Job never finds out why he suffers. God never tells him because that's not what Job needed. Isn't that just like us? When we're facing a time of difficulty, when we're facing a time of suffering, what is the thing we think that if we grab it will help us feel better? 
that if we could just know why. If we could just have an understanding as to why we suffer. But Job never gets that. Because Job and we need something different. What Job needed was God himself. And that's exactly what Job was getting. Because the problem of evil is too large. The problem of Satan is too powerful. The problem of suffering is too much. But God has the ability to take evil and Satan by the nose. And they too will be tossed into the lake of fire. The whole point of the exercise here with Job is to make it clear to Job, clear to us, that we will never be able to save ourselves. Our two great enemies, death and evil, will never fall to any tool or any device that we create. And so therefore, salvation, any sort of saving, must come from outside of ourselves. Salvation has to be provided. God has to be the one. And he ultimately does in the cross of Jesus Christ. There we find total and complete salvation earned, provided for us, nothing left for us to do, but believe that Jesus can and has paid it all. That he had the power to shove that sword into the belly of behemoth and pull Leviathan out of the water by his nose. So number one, we are only human. Number two, only God can save. In this last section, simple one word, number three, repent. Repent. The language of verses 1 through 6 of chapter 42 is Job's final words of this book. We remember in the first speech, God came along with a series of questions. Job, were you there when I laid the foundations of the universe? Job, can you make sure that the lion cubs get fed? The first speech was God asking Job to understand his limits in his knowledge and understanding of the world. In the second speech, God is coming around and saying, Job, can you deal with injustice? Can you kill death? Can you tame evil? He's exposing Job as only human, and he's making it very clear that he is the only one who can save. And so Job responds uh, in three ways. Verse 2, he says, look, what I always believed believed about God has been affirmed. Job had started to wobble. Uh, Through his suffering, through his difficulty, through the loss of his children, through the loss of his health, through the loss of his business... He had started to wobble. He had started to wonder, Did, is, is God as powerful as I always thought he was? And Job is admitting now, he is the almighty God. Who you are has been affirmed. The second thing Job declares is this, he now knows what he doesn't know. Now it's clear over the course of the conversations that Job and his friends were morally serious men. These were men who were highly intelligent because they are discussing some very complex philosophy. And these were men who had clear theological traditions. And we know from earlier in the book that Job was the kind of guy that people went to for advice. By every standard, Job and his friends were considered wise. But now Job is saying there are things I should not have said. Thoughts I should not have had. And I am now aware that I am simply a baby in the realm of wisdom. The third thing Job declares is that he has been made wiser. He now understands and knows God in a way that he would never have known had he never gone through this. 
We, in fact, have a wonderful turn of the phrase here. Job says, by hearing God, he now sees God. Through the hearing of God's word, he now has had his eyes open to see who God is. And as a result of these declarations, Job then finalizes everything by a simple act of repentance. He says, I despise myself. It's not the idea of wicked self-loathing. It is repentance. It is an admission that he is not who he thought he was. It's an admission that he does need help. It's an admission that he doesn't know it all or is all-powerful or even fully capable. Now, there's a parallel Uh, I'll end with this. There's a a parallel text in the New Testament that teaches this same thing. Jesus uh, arrives at a beach, and on that beach is a man who is demon-possessed. Quite insane. Now, the text tells us in Mark chapter 5 that uh, a number of times the men of the village had come down to this beach, to this demon-possessed man who lived in the cave, and tried to bind him up. But through perhaps some supernatural strength, he was always able to break the chains and always able to attack them, and they would have to run away. So Jesus arrives at this beach, and this crazy demon-possessed man comes coming out of the cave, and he goes towards Jesus, and the demons begin to talk. And they say, please don't torment us before the time. And Jesus says, I want you to come out of that, man. And the demons reply, all right, but please don't send us away. Send us into that herd of pigs over there. And Jesus said, fine, do that. So the demons go off to the herd of pigs, and the herd of pigs all of a sudden stampede, go right off a cliff and drown in the ocean. Now, as you would figure, that catches the attention of the villagers. Somebody runs into town, tells them what has happened. So the town shows up. Here they are on the beach. And there they see, according to the text, they see the crazy demon-possessed man sitting there with Jesus, eating clothes and in his right mind. And then there's an interesting phrase that follows right after. And they were scared. And the first thing they did in response to seeing what Jesus could do that they couldn't was to ask him to leave. This man was the epitome of evil in their village. This man who they had tried and tried and tried to rid themselves of by binding him up. Jesus shows them that he has the ability to bind up evil, to take it by its nose. And in response, they're scared. And they ask him to leave. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is enough to deal with your biggest problem, that being your sin. It's a problem you will never deal with. There will never be enough charities, there will never be enough good causes, never enough church attendance, never enough truth-telling for you to bind up the evil that is your sin. But the cross is enough. You can be saved by being washed in the blood. So let me make this clear. It is not the blood of Christ in your good works. It is not the blood of Christ in dietary rules. It is not the blood of Christ in anything. The blood of Christ pays it all. Not a single thing left for you to do. So now, how do you respond? You're on that beach. You know, you can embrace this message. You can hear the gospel. You can repent and be saved. And let Jesus bind it up. Or maybe you're already a Christian. You can hear this message. You can believe and you can repent and be reoriented like Job. Or you can be scared 
And you can leave today trying to bind up evil using your own strength. The point of it all, evil, suffering, death, these are foes too mighty for us. We are not wise enough. We are not powerful enough to deal with them. We are not God, and it's not even close. Death, evil, suffering are mighty beasts in, the life, in our lives and the lives of others. And we will, they will never fall to our own weapons. They will never fall to our own devices. But God can slay death. He can lead evil around by the nose. And so let us be like Job. Let us repent of every thinking. Even in the midst of our suffering, let us repent of ever thinking that we are God. And let us repent of ever thinking that God is anything less than God. And let us be like Job and hear his word and see him afresh again. Let's pray. Father, two speeches, one reminding us that we are not wise enough to be managers of this world. And now, Father, a reminder that we are not powerful enough to save ourselves. But you can. And so let us turn away from all the things in our life that we try to use to save ourselves. Let us not be convinced of our own selves, but let us be saved by your mighty hand. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Take our hymn books once again. Stand if you would please. And turn to hymn number 79. And let's sing the first and the fourth verses of My Jesus, I Love Thee. My Jesus, I love thee. I know. sin I resign my gracious redeemer my savior art thou if ever I love thee my Jesus tis thou in mansions of I'm glad you could be here this morning. Just a reminder, next week, next Sunday morning, uh, the Todd Becker Foundation will be here. Uh, They have a a ministry to uh, area high schools all around the country. They'll be here just to share a brief time of their ministry. And then next Sunday evening, the Ellis's will be here, and they are missionaries to South Sudan. We want to be the best encouragement we can to these groups, so we want to be here uh, to encourage them in that way. Let me pray for you, and we'll be done. Heavenly Father, again, thank you. 
for uh, a reminder and for the joy of knowing that you do save, that you can save. And I pray, Father, whether we are already saved, already Christians this morning, I pray we be reaffirmed in that truth. That, Father, you are the one with the mighty hand. And I pray we would always remember that. We do continue to pray, Father, I pray for these people. I pray that you take care of them, keep them safe. I pray you would bless them, and for your, by your grace and mercy, we pray you would help us to return again this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.